I know many of you are probably surprised uh, to see me up here this morning uh, because usually Ryan, uh, you know, manipulates his calendar so that his vacation lands on some week where we're studying some kind of very controversial, uh, troubling passage of Scripture. Um, but somehow it worked out that I get loaves and fishes today, and so there's really nothing difficult there, and here I am. So um, I do hope that as we look at this passage today, which is probably a familiar passage to many of you, I'm hoping that we will see something new and meaningful within it. You know, we've been journeying through the book of Mark together for many weeks now. Uh, we're taking a look at the life and the times of Jesus Christ through the eyes of Mark. And uh, we also suspect that Mark was probably uh, writing in partnership with the apostle Peter. I don't know about y'all, um, but I, I feel like God has really been revealing himself anew to us through this series so far. I hope that continues this morning. The miracle of the loaves and the fishes is such a beautiful story. It, it truly is an amazing moment in the life of Jesus' ministry. And it's my hope that as we take a closer look at it, it will, that we'll come to a greater and a deeper understanding of who Jesus truly is and why we so desperately need him in our lives. So, so what we're going to do this morning, uh, we're going to look at uh, the miracle itself, and then we're going to take uh, a moment and dig just a little bit deeper, because I think that Mark and Peter left us a little bit of an Easter egg to discover within this story. Uh, we kind of have a big idea this morning that we can keep in mind as we read. It is this, Jesus, the good shepherd, satisfies all our longings with an overabundance of grace. Well, let's get started. I want to make four observations about Jesus' miracle. The first one is this. The crowd was desperate to be in the presence of Jesus. In verses 32 and 33, they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So here's the situation, right? These disciples had been sent out by Jesus. We don't know exactly how long they were gone, but they were kind of on like a short-term mission trip. They had been sent out, and they were ministering to the people, and they came back, and they're excited, but they're exhausted. And Jesus has encouraged them to get away with him to a desolate place so that they can get some rest. And so they've hopped on a boat, and they're heading across the sea for like what might be called a discipleship retreat. But the people of the towns notice them traveling, and they're recognizing them, and they decide they want to be wherever they're going. So they're chasing them on foot. Now, the people of the region, right, they're aware of Jesus and of his disciples and of their ministry, and they were hungry for it. They were literally running around the edge of a great lake to get to it. See, Jesus was a big deal, bigger than Taylor Swift. <laughs> and people were turning out by the thousands. 
Now, if I was a regular preacher, this is where I'd stop and I'd say something like, how desperate are you to be in the presence of Jesus? What's holding you back from seeking him out? But I'm not a regular preacher, so let's move on to the next (laughs) observation. Jesus saw the crowd and he had compassion for them. Verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So let's say that I, I took my discipleship group and we decided that we were going to get away for, uh, for a couple of days uh, for a period of rest and relaxation. And then I, I get there and I turn around and all of you are there, right? You have followed me there and you're like, hey, preach for us. I'm saying this with all of the love in my heart. <laughs> I don't think the initial reaction I would have would be to have compassion on you. I'd probably kind of be annoyed. And this is why Jesus is our Savior and not me. Jesus sees that all of these people, they want to be near him. And his initial response is compassion. He just rolled up his sleeves and started giving them the truth of the gospel he's going to get all the rest he needed when he's in the tomb. Observation three, Jesus was not overwhelmed by their desperate need. Verses 35 through 36, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. See, the day is turning into night. These poor, weary disciples have been at this all day, and they realize that now they have a problem. They have no food. They don't have any food for themselves, and they certainly don't have food for thousands of party crashers. I think the disciples were probably a bit annoyed by this situation. Hey, Jesus, you dragged us out here to this desolate place, And now you're just going on and on and on with your message. And now the day is gone and it's late. Would you just send these people away already so we can finally get something to eat for ourselves? But Jesus stays calm and collected. Verse 37, he answers them. You give them something to eat. And here I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I would bet on it. This next statement was said with a lot of sarcasm. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? A denarii was like an entire day's wages. The disciples are saying, we would have to work for 200 days to have enough money to feed all these people. But I think... I think maybe something was going through Jesus' head when he said, you give them something to eat. I I wonder if he was thinking about another time God fed people, about the prophet Elisha. And we find this story in 2 Kings chapter 4, that a man has brought 20 loaves of bread and some ears of grain to the prophet Elisha, 
And Elisha's like, hey, give all that food to my men so that they can eat. But his servant says, there must be a hundred men out there. There's no way this is going to feed them all. But the prophet says, don't worry about it. It will be enough and there'll be some left over. And that's exactly what happened. I think it's possible that the disciples were familiar with this story. Being good Jewish boys, they probably heard this story a time or two. And I think Jesus might have been trying to remind them, like, God has done this before. We follow a big God. He's able to take care of his people. But if they remembered that story, they weren't optimistic now. See, it's one thing to feed a hundred men with 20 loaves. This was entirely different. See, the disciples were facing 5,000 men. And let's be clear, what that means is 5,000 households, men, women, and children. This was a crowd of maybe 15, 20,000, maybe more people. Jesus seems unconcerned. Verses 38 through 40, he says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they went and found out. We read in other gospels, they went and found a little boy who had five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass, and they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Hundreds and fifties. That means we have hundreds of groups of 50 along this hillside. And a a boy with five small loaves of bread and two fish. Now, we don't know how big the fish were. They could have been like Jonah fish, right? Like big enough to eat a man. But I mean, a little boy's carrying them around, so I'm guessing they're probably much smaller. But let's say this boy is carrying around two king salmon right? That would never be enough to feed all these hungry people. Verse 41, taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looks up to heaven and and says a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Now, when it says that Jesus gave the, the food to the disciples to set before the people. There, there's a, a Greek word used for gave. And it's in the imperfect tense. So what that means is, it, this could be translated as, Jesus kept giving food to the disciples. It should have taken maybe a couple of minutes, right? To get through that little amount of food. But this is, this is kind of the picture. Imagine this. Maybe Jesus has all the food in a basket, right? And he's breaking it up. And the disciples are standing here to distribute it. And he, Jesus, just keeps handing them food, right? He's pulling it out of the basket. I imagine he's got a big, like, knowing grin on his face, right? He's got a twinkle in his eye, right? There, he's like a magician, right? Like pulling, pulling all the handkerchiefs out of his pocket and it never stops, and, and you know, the disciples are just amazed. They're like, where is all this food coming from? What, how is he doing this? I think there was probably a lot of laughter. I think this was probably an amazing moment. I think it probably went on for, you know, hours, 
How long would it take to distribute food to all those people? I think this was an amazing moment. And the fourth observation is this. Jesus did not do the bare minimum. Right? If everyone had gotten just a hunk of bread right, and a couple bites of fish, that would have been an amazing miracle in and of itself. But that's not the Jesus that we know and love. Verses 42 and 44, they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Everyone ate until they were satisfied. That Greek word, uh, it means they ate their fill. They ate until they were satiated. They could not have eaten another bite. And each disciple still collected a basket each of leftovers. You know, you go to a party, right? And, and you, you know, you're having a good time and then eventually it's time to leave and the host of the party, she's looking around her kitchen and she sees all the food that, no, that people didn't eat. And what does she do? She's like, hey, you gotta take some food with you when you go. Because this is all going to go to waste if you don't take some. I think that's what this was like. I think people were bringing doggy bags home with them from that meal. This is the Jesus that we serve. Listen to what he says in John 10. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me, oh, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. Jesus came that we may have life, but not just the bare minimum life, that we may have life abundantly to our filling point where we can't even take another bite and with some left over with 10,000 beside. Speaking of that good shepherd, let's take just a little bit deeper look at this miracle. I think Mark is providing us with a couple of interesting details that um, reveal kind of like this hidden Easter egg for us to discover. The first is a concept that is called reclining at table. See, when the story says that Jesus commanded all those people to sit down in groups, the Greek word that's used for sit down is aniklino. And what it means is to recline at table. And this was a Greek custom, an ancient Greek custom that the Romans adopted when they came into power. And so in Jesus' day, when good people or when good friends would gather together for a meal, they, they didn't like sit at chairs around a table like we picture. They actually lied down on cushions and they kind of laid on their side in a reclined posture and that's how they ate. And so it makes me think like, oh, the Last Supper, right? Like, what was that like? Most of us immediately think of this painting, The Lord's Supper, you know, by Da Vinci, and it shows Jesus, it looks like he's sitting on a chair, right? And for some reason, he and his disciples have all sat on just one side of the table. 
And I think as amazing as this painting is, it's not a really good representation of what it was probably really like. The book of John tells us they were reclining at table. They, they were lying around the room on cushions. Indeed, John himself, he was leaning back against Jesus. Like they were propped up against each other. It was close. It was personal. It was an intimate setting. And I think about when I read in Scripture, Jesus was always having a meal with somebody. He, he did so much ministry over meals, and I'm like, this brings a whole new depth to the relationship he had to the people to whom he was ministering to. And I, I think about those Pharisees, right, who would criticize Jesus. They would say, why does he eat meals with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners? And if you imagine them all kind of piled on top of each other, it brings this whole new context to the assumptions that people were making about our, sa our Savior. But here's the thing, to recline at table together, what that meant was, like, I consider you to be a safe person. You're cherished in my house. We're, we're not worried about having to get up quickly or, or defend ourselves from harm. We're in a safe place. And this is what Jesus was inviting those people into on that hillside, recline with me for a while. We're among friends. And then this next slide is maybe the most profound point I've ever made in a sermon. If we'd put it up, grass is green. This is another tidbit that Mark and Peter thought that we needed to know, right? They mentioned the color of the grass. Now, Matthew and John, in their accounts of this miracle, they do mention grass, but they don't feel the need to tell us what color it is. Luke, he doesn't get bogged down in details. He doesn't even mention the grass. But grass is green. We're told so in Scripture, so you know it's true. I thought it was strange that Mark mentioned the color, and so I've, I looked closer at the differing uh, stories that cover this miracle, just seeing what are the other differences in how the stories are told. And uh, I noticed that Mark is not only the only one who mentions the color of the grass, but he's also the only one who tells us that Jesus saw that the people were like sheep without a shepherd. And so I dug a little bit deeper. I looked at the word green in the original Greek, and, and I saw that it was akin to another Greek word that's in the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is basically the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in Psalm 23, there is a verse that says, He makes me lay down in green pastures. And that word green there is akin to the word that is used in Mark 6. Do you see this connection? Jesus told these people to recline, to lay down in green pastures. I think Mark and Peter were watching this wonderful day unfold. They were watching their Savior perform this amazing miracle. They were watching him care for these lost sheep, and they were watching him have them lay down in green grass to have a satisfying meal together. And they were realizing that Jesus 
is the embodiment of what King David wrote about in Psalm 23, this prophetic messianic psalm. Jesus, the good shepherd. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd. He came so we could have life, and that abundantly. And he told us this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So this is kind of the practical. In one sense, Jesus' care for his sheep is very practical. If we're a part of the kingdom of God, that is, if we're actively connected to the life of a healthy church, then it's unlikely that we will become homeless or destitute or starving. Jesus takes care of us through our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, people contact New City all the time seeking help. These are like perfect strangers contacting us through the website or on our phone line, and uh, they're kind of looking for a handout. They, they need help with rent. They need help uh, buying groceries. They need help with car repairs. We got one person who contacted us. All she wanted for us to do was buy a cake for her daughter's birthday party. And we look at these moments as opportunities, right, to demonstrate God's love to people in our community in the hope that they'll become open to the truth of the gospel. And we have a benevolence committee. They do a great job determining who's in genuine need and stewarding our limited resources to help those people we can, but also referring the rest to other resources in our community. But here's a hard truth. Many of these people... They aren't interested in Jesus' gospel or what he's called his church to do. Their, their interest in the church is to get their needs met. And, and sometimes when we're unable to help people, they get upset. They think we're denying them something that we maybe owe them. And the truth is we wish that we could just help everyone, but we can't. But here's the thing. Every time this happens, every time a, a stranger comes to us, someone that's never even stepped foot through this door. And I always have the same thought. I'm like, I wish, I wish you were already a part of this body. I wish you were already a part of our church family. It would be so much easier to help you in 
I wonder if you would even be in the situation you're in if you were already a part of the kingdom. You see, when we're a part of the life of a healthy church, that's when we allow our our Christian sisters and our Christian brothers to truly know us and to truly know what we're going through. Well, it's been my experience that you can't even stop people from helping you when you need it. I think about the time that Brian Pettigrew came to my house and mowed my lawn when my back was out. I think about all the meal trains that go out of here when someone has a baby or has surgery and how many of our people are cooking food and bringing it to people who just need a meal. I think about Peter Underwood pulling my daughter's car out of a ditch in the rain with his big old truck. I think about that time one of our MCs pooled up their money and bought a car for someone who was in need. When my daughter Holly was, was really little, we were teaching her about the value of money. You know, so we, we kept doing things like teaching her, like, you know, we'd be at the store and she'd want a toy, and we're like, no, you can't buy that toy. We can't afford that. You know, she'd want candy. We're like, no, we're not buying candy. We can't afford that. Well, one Sunday morning in Sunday school, her teacher was telling the class, like, hey, we're all going to bring in toothbrushes. Like, you know, we're going to donate these toothbrushes to people who are in need, and they were having a supply drive, and my daughter, she raised her hand and informed her teacher, like, I can't do that. We can't, we can't afford that. <laughs> right? So for weeks, right, we're getting anonymous donations of money left in our mailbox. <laughs> Pit- People are leaving bags of groceries on our doorstep, and Alicia and I are like, what is happening? And we start asking around, and we find out this story, and we're like, guys, we're okay. We're okay. But that's what it's like to be a part of the family of God. Here's a question that you could ask yourself today. Are you allowing the good shepherd to provide for your practical needs? That is, are you putting first the kingdom of God by being a part of his church? Are you known by your sisters and your brothers in Christ? Does anyone know your fears, your anxieties, your needs? And the flip side of this is, are you considering the fears and the anxieties and the needs of your brothers and sisters that are around you? That's the practical side of Jesus as our shepherd. You know, he guides us into a family that knows and cares for us. And he guides us to know and care for others. But there's much more to life with the good shepherd than simply our physical needs. There's also our spiritual needs. Jesus' care for his sheep is spiritual. Before Jesus filled the bellies, of that enormous crowd with bread and fish. He filled their minds and their hearts with the bread of life. Before they reclined together at table, they feasted on his word. And let's not forget why those people were there in the first place. Why in the world would these people just drop everything and gather their families and run around the edge of a lake just to be in the presence of Jesus and his disciples? Why would they do that? Because they were spiritually starving. 
the leaders of their day, the leaders of their religion were not providing them with any guidance. In Jesus' day, what would happen is the, the religious leaders would, would read Scripture, and then they would ask each other questions about it, as if nobody knew what it really meant. And all this ever resulted in was them coming up with this list of man-made rules that they thought, well, maybe if we do these things perfectly, then we will be righteous in God's eyes. But no one could keep all those rules. And when Jesus would step into a synagogue and he would open the scrolls and he would read the scripture, it says he did so with authority. He said, this is what the word of God is saying. This is what is true. This is how it applies to your life. This is how you can take this home and do something with it in your family. And the people were desperate for that, for real leadership in their faith. And that's why Jesus had compassion on them. This is why he said that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was the shepherd that they needed. And he is the shepherd that we need as well. Not only in our kind of wayward culture, which is more and more like sheep without a shepherd, but even within the church. You know, when the Apostle Paul was dealing with the frustration of his own sinfulness and his own kind of disappointment with what was going on in his life, he had prayed to God three different times that he would take away something that was troubling him, a thorn in his flesh, and this is what Jesus told him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus can fill our tummies for sure, but even more amazingly, he fulfills our spiritual needs as well. And I think Psalm 23 outlines for us the many ways that our Savior the good shepherd provides for us even beyond our physical needs. Do you need rest? He makes us lie down in green pastures and besides still waters. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Do you need restoration? David, writing this psalm, he restores my soul. What does that mean? Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're broken. We need to be restored. We need to be conformed evermore into the image of our Savior. And he's doing that work in us. And he's having us do that work in our own salvation. Do you need guidance? He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Matthew 7, 13, and 14, enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, 
and those who find it are few. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And you can come to the Father if you come through me. He's guiding us in paths of righteousness. Do you need protection? I will fear no evil. What does Romans 8.31 says? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? When the good shepherd is next to us, when he's present with us, we have nothing to fear. Do you need comfort? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 2 Corinthians 1.5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, right, as we are a part of this broken world, as we experience pain and disappointment, just as Christ came into our broken world and had to experience pain and disappointment and brokenness, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to suffer. And he sends us his spirit as the great comforter. Do you need exaltation? You anoint my head with oil. Do you need to know that you're valuable? Do you need to know that because God has given you a purpose and a place in his kingdom that you are of very great value. That God looks at you and he sees something that is priceless. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do you need abundance? My cup overflows. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We're not talking about health and wealth, right? We're not talking about prosperity gospel. That's not a thing. But he gives us all that we need. He, all those blessings are ours with 10,000 beside. Ours is a God of abundance. Do you need perseverance? Do, do you need to know it's going to be okay? That you're going to get across the finish line? That, that what God has started in you is going to come to completion? Do you need to know that you cannot lose the salvation that God has called you to? It says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will do it. His promises are true, and he doesn't break them. Do you need eternal life? I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have 
eternal life. See, whatever your need is, whether it's physical or it's spiritual, Jesus is the answer for you. His grace is sufficient for all of our needs. And because of this, nothing else is ever going to satisfy us. Everything else is insufficient. And Jesus never promised us that that being a part of his kingdom would mean that we don't face adversity or persecution. In fact, he's kind of promised us the opposite. But what he has promised is that we don't need to worry about those things. Why? Because he promised us that he will be with us to the end of the age and even unto all eternity. Jesus is always with us. See, Jesus being the good shepherd, it's such good news. Not because he gives us everything we want and he takes away anything that we don't want, but it's good news because we're no longer like sheep without a shepherd. We're no longer being tossed to and fro by cultural changes or false doctrines or by our own sinful nature because the good shepherd is with us. Is there something in your life that you think Jesus can't satisfy? Are you dissatisfied with your career or with school? Are you dissatisfied in your marriage? Are you concerned with how your kids are turning out? Do you think like maybe if I just had a bunch more money, then I could finally be satisfied? Or, or maybe if I could lose a bunch of weight or or gain a bunch of weight, or gain muscle, or change my appearance, then maybe I would finally feel worthy of love and acceptance. Are you frustrated with our culture, or the state of our country, or like with the hypocrisy of the church? Whatever your hang-up, whatever it is, hear me clearly. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. But pastor, you don't know what I've done. His grace is sufficient for you. But I've failed a thousand times. His grace is sufficient for you. I might lose everything if I follow him. His grace is sufficient for you. I don't know if I'm strong enough to endure what I'm going through. His grace is sufficient for you. Nothing else is sufficient. Nothing else will ever truly satisfy because we were made for this. We were designed for this, to be in communion with our God. And when sin entered the world, all that got broken. It broke the connection between us and our Creator, and it left us dead in our sin. But God was not willing to let it sit there. He sent his son, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for our sins so that we could be restored in our relationship to God. And guess what? He knows that we're broken. He knows it's not working. He knows that we are like sheep without a shepherd unless we have Jesus. And he's not annoyed. He's not annoyed that we're dying for his affection and his attention. He has compassion. That's why he died for us, for just this reason. 
so that we could dwell together in the house of the Lord, reclining at table together. Imagine it, leaning back up against Jesus himself. Just Jesus and all us sinners and tax collectors gathered around the table, feasting forever. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.